This is program C735, and I want to say thank you to those of you supporting Into the Word. We appreciate that very, very much, and may God bless you for it. Any of you that would like to assist them in that effort, just jot down the contact information at the end of today's program, and then send your gift of any amount, one time or something that's going to be repeated over and over again, to that address, and that will all be used for airtime. Fridays, I also challenge you to be active in your Christian body life. You need to have a home congregation. You need to be active there. So find a place if you're if you don't have a place. And if you have a place, be active there. If you're looking for a place and you're within driving distance of Elkhart East, I extend you my usual invitation. Come, check us out. Maybe you'll want to settle down and worship and study and serve with us. I'd also like to mention one more time that uh, my recent study trip to Israel has uh, been very useful to me. It was very exciting. And I am seriously thinking about taking... Uh, another study trip to actually lead this study trip to Israel next spring, that is, uh, next May. And so, if any of you might be interested in taking such a trip, uh, please get in touch with me. I'll have more details uh, as I develop this plan uh, over the next few weeks, and uh, we'll uh, see about making that a very special thing, all right? Let's go ahead and uh, continue our study in intertestamental period history. We're currently looking at the time where the Ptolemaic Greek kingdom of Egypt has gotten started. It started pretty much right after Alexander the Great died in 323. Uh, one of his commanders a man by the name of Ptolemaeus, uh, decided to entrench himself in Egypt and from there try to take control of the rest of the empire from um, his rival successors to, uh, to Alexander because Alexander did not have an adult heir uh, that would take over his kingdom. One of the people that assisted Ptolemy in the process of all this was uh, another commander from Alexander's army, a man by the name of Seleucus. But after he had assisted Ptolemy in securing um, his territory all the way up to pretty much Damascus area, uh, this guy, Seleucus, went off and became powerful first in Babylon, and then Damascus, and then a, a new city called Antioch. And he establishes his own dynasty, uh, his own Hellenistic, that is Greek-style uh, empire out of Syria. And just like his former patron, Ptolemy, <clears throat> Seleucus wants to take over all of the former territory of Alexander. 
And so the two end up bumping heads on a regular basis, and not just them, but their descendants. And the reason this is so important is because this was predicted in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12 speak in great detail of the time period that we're starting to read about here, where the king of the south, that would be the Ptolemaic kingdom, and the king of the north, which would be the Seleucid kingdom, will be going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and that the beautiful land, the land of the covenant, Judea, was going to be caught between the two and impacted by the activities of the two kingdoms. And so uh, the encouragement in the book of Daniel was to hang in there and be faithful to the covenant, even whenever one of the individuals from the north would try to eradicate the covenant, to just stay firm and uh, they would eventually come to the end of this crisis. And uh, we will talk quite a bit about how that played out and established uh, an independent Jewish kingdom known as the Hasmonean Kingdom. It was short-lived, but it is a significant background to the New Testament, and we need to talk about that. All right, so the last thing we were looking at was from... Uh, Book 12 of the Antiquities of the Jews, chapter number 1, where um, Josephus is telling us about how Ptolemy I, evidently in the last few years of his reign, was so caught up into trying to stabilize his power base that he went to Jerusalem on a Sabbath day, pretending to be all peaceful and nice. And once he got into the city, he basically started taking Jewish people uh, into his army and into his service, whether they liked it or not. And so this is what we're going to read starting in uh, uh, the, um, the seventh subparagraph. It says, when Ptolemaeus had taken a great many captives, both from the mountainous parts of Judea and from the places where about Jerusalem and Shamrayim, that's Samaria, so from Jerusalem and Samaria, and the places near Mount Gerizim, he led them all into Aiguptus, Egypt, and settled them there. So in his earlier reign, he had taken, excuse me, Alexander, previous to this, had taken... Uh, Jewish and Samaritan troops into his army of their own free will to serve wherever he posted them. And Egypt was one of those places. Uh, earlier in um, Ptolemy's reign, he had had accepted uh, some of those free will troops to serve uh, in his army uh, down on the Egyptian southern uh, frontier. But now, late in his reign, he feels he has to to really ramp it up. And he's not going to give them a choice in it. He just simply moves them. 
verse, excuse me, sub-paragraph 8. Uh, as he knew that the people of Jerusalem were most faithful in the observation of oaths and covenants, and this formed the answer they made to Alexander when he sent an ambassage to them after he had beaten Darius in battle. So he distributed many of them into garrisons, and at Alexandria gave them equal privileges of citizens with the Macedonians themselves and required of them to take their oaths that they would keep their fidelity to the posterity of those who committed these places to their care. So he takes these guys off to Egypt, gives them nice places to live. That seems to be pretty obvious. Gives them nice places to live and uh, gets them to swear an oath of allegiance, of service to his cause. Because he knows that once a Jewish person makes an oath, they will keep it, even if it brings them under threat of death by somebody else, because that's what had happened with Alexander. So that's kind of a backhanded compliment that he's making here, uh, but it's also a mechanism that he's taking advantage of. Uh, nay, there were not a few other Jews who of their own accord went into Aiguptus as invited by the goodness of the soil and by the liberality of Ptolemaeus. Now that's probably a reference to the earlier guys, the ones that went there on their own free will. Um, so we've got then some Jewish people there by choice, some Jewish people there because they were kind of forced into making an oath of allegiance. And we will discover later there were some that were effectively kidnapped by the soldiers in the process of all this. Um, but you remember that it wasn't just Jews. It was also Samaritans that were taken. And that causes some trouble. Ver, uh, uh, subparagraph 10 says, however... There were disorders among their posterity, so a few generations down the line, with relation to the Shamarim, the Samaritans, on account of their resolution to preserve that conduct of life which was delivered to them by their forefathers. And they thereupon contended one with another, while those of Jerusalem said that their temple was holy and resolved to send their sacrifices thither. But the Samaritans were resolved that they should send theirs to Mount Gerizim. So you have here the beginning of that rift that we see in John chapter 4, where Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well are having their back and forth. And the Samaritans are absolutely convinced that they are worshiping God properly by worshiping him at Mount Gerizim while the Jews are absolutely positive that they are worshiping improperly at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And they are at great odds with one another, and sometimes it comes to blows, sometimes it comes to fatalities. Uh, <clears throat> but we'll deal with some of those later in the history. Um, at this point, let's talk about how the first translation of the Old Testament holy books, the Tanakh, came into another language rather than Hebrew or Aramaic in which they were originally written. This first translation is referred to as the Greek Septuagint. And it's represented by the Roman letters LXX. And we'll learn why that is the case in just a moment. 
this part of the story starts in 284 BC uh, when Ptolemaeus I dies. And he leaves his kingdom to his son, who's been helping him rule the last few years, Ptolemaeus II. Now, Ptolemaeus II uh, had some people working under him uh, that were very invested in benefiting from the Jewish culture. And that story is told in chapter 2 of book 12 of the Antiquities of the Jews. And we'll spend probably today and probably most, if not all, of Monday uh, on this particular story. Um, it starts with this summary. When Alexander had reigned 12 years, and then after him Ptolemy Soter, 40 years, Philadelphus then took the kingdom of Egypt and held it 40 years within one, so 39 years. So this Ptolemy Philadelphus, the lover of men, uh, he is also known by Ptolemy II. And he began his rule in 284 BC upon his father's death. This is what Josephus continues. He procured the law to be interpreted and set free those that were come from Jerusalem into Egypt and were in slavery there, who were a hundred and twenty thousand. Now that's the summary of the story he's about to tell. The occasion was this. Demetrius Philarius. Now these are all Greek names because these guys are first or second generation Greeks in the Middle East. So this Demetrius, who was library keeper to the king, now he started out under Ptolemy I. Ptolemy I is the one who established the idea of the Library of Alexandria, a repository for all of the written knowledge of the world. So now, the librarian goes to his new boss, Ptolemy II, and starts talking to him about that project. Says, now, he was endeavoring, if it were possible, to gather together all the books or all the scrolls that were in the habitable earth and buying whatsoever was anywhere valuable or agreeing to the king's inclination, which was very earnestly set upon collecting the scrolls, to which inclination of his Demetrius was zealously subservient. When once Ptolemy asked him how many tens of thousands of books he'd collected, he replied that he had already had about 200,000. So that seems to be the original Ptolemy, Ptolemy, the guy that came up with the idea, let's have a, a library. This man, who's the librarian for him, said, oh, I've already got about 200,000 on file, but that in a little while he should have 500,000, so half a million. Uh, so when you hear people talking about the Library of Alexandria, understand uh, it was a project uh, not unlike what Google Books is trying to do today, to keep all 
of the written books of the world in one place, copies of them, uh, if possible, the originals in one secure location. Now, unfortunately, later, uh, the Library of Alexandria is burned to the ground and many of the singular editions were lost for all time. And uh, I think that was a great tragedy, and we'll talk about that when we come to it in history. Uh, back to Josephus. But he said he'd been informed that there were many books of laws among the Jews worthy of inquiring after and worthy of the king's library, but which, being written in characters and in a dialect of their own, will cause no small pains in getting them translated into the Greek tongue. So here he is talking to his new boss, and he says, we got an awful lot of books already, but the Jewish people have some really special books that no one has copies of because they're written in a unique language and they've never been taken out of that language. Uh, that the character in which they are written uh, seems to be like that which is proper character of the Syrians and that its sound when pronounced is like theirs also and that this sound appears to be peculiar to themselves. So uh, Demetrius is basically saying these books are written in Hebrew for the most part. Hebrew is similar to Aramaic, but it has unique vocabulary and unique pronunciation. And so we're going to need assistance in bringing those books into the Library of Alexander because they're going to have to be translated for the very first time into a different language. Uh, Wherefore, he said that nothing hindered why they might not get these scrolls to be translated also. For while nothing is wanting that is necessary for that purpose, we may have their scrolls also in this library. Now, Josephus testifies later that what we're talking about are the 22 books of the Jewish canon. That is, the closed category of divine scripture. And guess what? Those 22 books are represented in the 39 books of our English Old Testament. Uh, they're just numbered different. For example, the last 12 books are all in one scroll. And so when we read here, that they're trying to get these scrolls, we're talking about 22 scrolls that they're trying to get their hands on to be translated into Greek. Um, so the king thought that what Demetrius was very zealous to procure him an abundance of scrolls and that he suggested what was exceedingly proper for him to do and therefore he wrote to the Jewish high priest that he should act accordingly. So he's going to, to uh, reach out to the Jewish high priest, and request the opportunity to translate these books. Now, there was one Aristius who was among the king's most intimate friends. So he's, think about him being on the personal staff, the personal uh, uh, advisory council for this Ptolemy II. On account of his modesty, very acceptable to him, this Aristius resolved frequently 
and that before now, to petition the king that he would set all the captive Jews in his kingdom free, and he thought this to be a convenient opportunity for making that petition. So he now becomes aware of the king's desire to get Jewish holy books translated into Greek and filed away in the Library of Alexandria. He has been trying for several years now, probably started when it first happened, but he's been trying to get Jewish kidnappees, people who'd been kidnapped uh, during Ptolemy's uh, operations in, in and around Jerusalem and Samaria. He's been trying to get them freed. And so he's like, whoa, this is the perfect opportunity now to get my pet project in front of the king and acted on. So, back to Josephus. He discoursed in the first place with the captains of the king's guards. So he goes to the top of the military council. And he persuaded them to assist him in what he's going to intercede with the king for. And so accordingly, Aristius embraced the same opinion with those that had been before mentioned and went to the king and made the following speech to him. So he brings them on board with his plan, says, you need to come, back me up. So what we have effectively here is an audience with Ptolemy II by his top civilian and military leadership. It is not fit for us, O king, to overlook things hastily or to deceive ourselves, but to lay the truth open. For since we have determined uh, not only to get the laws of the Jews transcribed, but interpreted also for your satisfaction, but what by what means can we do this while so many of the Jews are now slaves in your kingdom? So he says, how are we going to ask for permission to do this great project when there are illegally held Jewish slaves right now in your kingdom? Accordingly, uh, uh, excuse me, continuing with the speech, do you then what will be agreeable to my magnanimity and to your good nature, free them from the miserable condition they are in, because that God who supports your kingdom was the author of their laws. So now he's going to say, the God who is supporting you in your rule is the same God that caused these law books, these history books, to be written down that you want. Now, of course, Ptolemy worships Zeus and Apollo and all the Greek gods and goddesses. So listen to how uh, his his, um, right-hand guy spins that. He says... As I have learned by particular inquiry, for both these people and we also worship the same God, the framer of all things. We call him, and that truly, by the name of Zena, which is a form of Zeus. And then we have this explanation that that word means life. And then a further explanation that he's equivalent to Jupiter amongst the Romans. That's thrown in there, no doubt, by Josephus because he's writing these things for Roman readers. So he wants them to understand we're talking about Jupiter or Zeus. And here's the reason why 
uh, Aristius says we're all worshiping the same God anyway. Because he breathes life into all men. Therefore, do not restore these men to their own country. Um, excuse me. Therefore, do restore these men to their own country and do this to the honor of God because these men pay a particular excellent worship to him and know this farther that though I not be of kin to them by birth nor one of the same country with him yet do I desire these favors to be done them since all men are the workmanship of God and uh, I am sensible that he is well pleased with those that do good and I do therefore put up this petition to you to do good to them. So you can kind of hear a little bit of uh, Paul's way of approaching uh, the people uh, in the Areopagus at Athens, where he kind of says, look, let's start on a, a main point that we believe that there is one God who created all things and gave life to all people and that he expects us to do good things. So, here we have a Greek guy that is doing pretty much the same thing several, year, several hundred years earlier. Uh, when Aristius was saying thus, the king looked upon him with a cheerful and joyful countenance, and he said, How many tens of thousands do you suppose there are of, of such as want to be made free? To which Aristius uh, replied as he stood by, he said, A uh, hundred thousand, a few more than a hundred thousand. And the king made answer, Ooh, is this a small gift that you're asking, Aristius? See, that's quite a bit of money. Uh, but Sospius, and this is one of the military commanders, and the rest that stood by said that he ought to offer such a thank offering as was worthy of his greatness of soul uh, to that God had given him his kingdom. So the military guy jumps in and says, Hey, that's not really an awful lot of money when you think that you're thanking God for letting you be king. With this answer, he was much pleased, and he gave order that when they paid the soldiers their wages, so when they got their uh, monthly pay, they should lay down 20 drachmae for every one of the slaves. Now, this will have to develop next week when we take the story back up. Uh, but apparently, a lot of these guys were taken illicitly captive by soldiers. And now, the king is going to ask those guys to turn them free, and he's going to give them a one-time payment of 20 days wages to do that, to do the right thing. And uh, that is going to um, that is going to free all of these Jewish people just in time for the king, Ptolemaeus II, to ask his favor of the Jewish high priest. I'll see you next week when we continue the rest of this story.